Okay, so we're going to begin. So first of all, I wanted to thank you very much, thank everybody for coming and for the speakers in particular for uh, being here this afternoon. My name is Charles Small. I'm the director of um, the Institute for the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy. It's an independent research center. We're based in New York, but we're doing programming and work here at uh, the Hoover Institution, McGill University of Montreal, the Harvard Law School, and also Fordham University. Um, and I'm also honored and have the good fortune of being a, a Caret uh, scholar here at, at the Hoover Institution, so I'll be here for this year. And it's uh, a wonderful and an honor that we're able to uh, put this event together here at Hoover. Um, before I in introduce the speakers, I just wanted to remind you that the lecture today or the topic of the conversation today of the meeting is U.S. foreign policy, the rise of Islamism, and the abandonment of human rights and democratic principles with a question mark. It's a question. And we have uh, distinguished scholars here with us to, to address aspects of a very complex and multifaceted um, issue. I'd like to introduce first uh, Professor Boaz Ganor. Professor Ganor was also actually a distinguished Corette fellow here at Hoover several years ago. And he's currently the, the Ronald Lauder Chair for Counterterrorism at the Interdisciplinary Center, or the IDC, in Herzliya. And he's also the Deputy Dean of the Lauder School of Government and was the actual founder for the, Institute for, the International Institute for Counterterrorism. To his left is Professor Abe Sofer, who's the George Schultz Senior Fellow of Foreign Policy and National Security here at the Hoover Institution. And he's also a member of the task force at Hoover on issues of energy policy. To Boaz's <coughs> right, we have Lieutenant Colonel Brian Linville, who is the National Security Affairs Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. And he's also associated with the US um, Army War College, and until fairly recently, he was a senior defense uh, official or attache at the U.S. Embassy in um, Tripoli, in Libya. So his insights, uh, given the dynamics of what's going on in Libya, North Africa, and the Middle East, will be especially uh, pertinent. And to Brian's right, we have Professor Russell Berman. Professor Berman is the Walter Haas Professor in the Humanities here at Stanford University. He's a professor of comparative literature and German studies. He's also the director of the German studies program, and he's a senior fellow here at the Hoover Institution. And he's a member of a working group on Islamism and international order. So this is a, a truly uh, special and distinguished panel. So I just want to start off very quickly by giving a, a basic background. And I guess the question is, why would an institute on anti-Semitism put together a panel <laughs> on whether US foreign policy, given the rise of radical Islam, is, is abandoning its, its notions of human rights and democratic principles? Why would an institute dealing with anti-Semitism care about international relations? And I think the answer is, to me, extraordinarily clear. I think there's a perception that somehow anti-Semitism is a parochial issue. It's a Jewish issue. It's an Israeli issue. It's not an issue of uh, wider importance. And those of us who focus on anti-Semitism, what we really are doing, so some will accuse us, 
is defending Israel at all costs. So by raising the issue of anti-Semitism, we're really deflecting or trying to deflect criticism of Israel. And I would say to you, nothing could be further from the truth at all. That those of us who study anti-Semitism know from the history of anti-Semitism that anti-Semitism is not just a problem for the Jews. And actually, you can make the argument that morally and ethically, it's not a Jewish problem. It's a problem of those who hate. But politically and socially, we also know that once this disease of hatred is unleashed onto society, it's not just the Jews who become the targets of this hatred. It begins with Jews, but never anti-Semitism never ends with Jews. In a sense, you could argue that the Jews and the issues of anti-Semitism are the canary in the coal mine. And what we are witnessing with the rise of radical political Islam or Islamism, I am not speaking about Islam, I'm not speaking about Muslims. I think that's very important to make the distinction. I'm speaking about a, a social movement, which is a reactionary social movement that openly and consistently and clearly speaks about the extermination of Jews, not just of Israelis and Zionists, but of Jews. It's also a social movement that wants to do away with basic principles of democracy, basic principles of citizenship. So they speak openly about subjugating women, killing gay people, doing away with the notions of religious pluralism. In other words, they're diametrically, this movement is diametrically um, opposed to and, uh, uh, the basic notions of democracy and notions of citizenship. And this is a social movement which is gaining power and I, I am sad to say, and I think this is very important, that the US government uh, over the years has, has, has worked with and supported elements of these radical Islamist organizations and groupings for whatever means. And I think from a perspective of looking at the history of hatred and the damage this could do, we have to become mindful of these issues. And I was recently at Harvard University with Alan Dershowitz, and he was speaking <coughs> about the possibility, very briefly, what would have happened if Winston Churchill would have attacked the Nazis when they took over power and, and in Germany? And if the British would have attacked the Nazis, they would have killed, as Dershowitz argued, maybe 10,000 people. They would have been condemned by the international community as being aggressive and, and, and the like. But the people in the West, people in other countries, kicked the can down the road. And at the end of the Second World War, there were more than 60 million dead people. And Europe was in complete shambles. So the question is, how long can we afford to kick the can down the road. And I would like to show a one-minute clip from Kawadari. Kawadari is the spiritual leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood who's now in government in Egypt and receiving international aid, including aid and support, at least for now, from the United States of America. And here is a man's view on what to do with the Jews. And he also speaks to the question of the Second World War and the destruction of, in the Shoah and the Holocaust. Hitler. <laughs> كان هذا أدباً 
إلهيا تأديبا إلهيا وعقابا عقابا قدريا لهؤلاء والمرة القادمة إن شاء الله ستكون على أيدي المؤمنين كل ما أتمناه في ختام كلمتي هذا أن يهيئ الله لي في ختام حياتي فرصة للذهاب إلى أرض الجهاد والمقاومة على كرسي متحرك فأطلق رصاصة على أعداء الله اليهود somebody who's of great importance to the Muslim Brotherhood basically praising the work of Hitler. This is an organization that some in the, in the, in the current administration deem as moderate and the like. So I think these are things that we really need to, to look carefully at and we have a distinguished panel that will examine elements of the ideology and elements related to these type of questions. So thank you. So first we will start with, uh, excuse me, uh, Professor Boaz Ganor, who just arrived from the IDC from Herzliya in, in Israel, and it's a really honor that he came all this way to speak with us. Thanks. Th thank you, Charles. First of all, uh, thank you for having me here, Charles. Uh, it's a great opportunity uh, being uh, or spending here my sabbatical, my sabbatical year three years ago um, was. Uh, a great time and uh, coming back it's uh, it's really uh, something that uh, I need to thank you and your organization for uh, organizing that I think the the uh, subject matter the uh, US uh, foreign policy and the rise of Islamism is a crucial subject matter uh, which needed to be discussed in this uh, prestigious uh, Institute uh, the Hoover Institute and thank you for arranging uh, all of that um, I'm especially uh, Happy uh, to be here, uh, but I would, uh, but I would say that um, I would be uh, more happy to speak about more optimistic subject matters than the subject that you decided to uh, uh, to have today. Um, coming from the place I'm coming from, Israel, we live under the constant Chinese curse. I mean, you live in interesting times, so those are uh, these are really interesting times uh, in the Middle East. Uh, I would say we are all facing now uh, changes, changes, maybe tectonic changes in the region. And uh, about a year ago, and uh, immediately after those changes started in the Middle East, the revolutions uh, in uh, different Arab countries, many people around the world, and especially in the United States, was arguing, well, we need to wait and see. We don't know what will be the outcome of that. Uh, basically, there were two schools. There, were, there was the school who was saying this is a positive process and uh, it would lead at the end of the day. We don't know when it will be the end of the day, but it will lead to something which will be much better than it is today. The uh, traditional um, regimes uh, in the Arab countries are changed and uh, democracy is replacing those, uh, those regimes. And this definitely would lead to something which is better than what we see today. Uh, the, uh, the other school, which was uh, arguing that the process is a negative process, was saying that this uh, so-called democratic process is leading to a situation in which uh, fundamentalists and extremists are taking advantage of uh, democratic apparatuses of elections, and they are taking over uh, those uh, countries, and the outcome would be problematic not only to the region, I would say to the whole 
world at the end of the day. So in my, the first part of my presentation today, I would like uh, to describe uh, the way I understand this process and uh, maybe to try to answer the question, is it a positive or a negative process? The second question that, uh, that I would uh, discuss in my presentation uh, would be, uh, in reference to the title that you have decided, uh, what is the connection of that process to the American foreign policy? Is there uh, any connection? Uh, and and uh, as a counterterrorism expert, that's what I do, uh, running the ICT, the Institute for Counterterrorism in Israel, what I would uh, describe is the American counterterrorism policy and the connection with the American counterterrorism policy to, to the uh, Arab Spring uh, in, uh, in the Middle East and the Arab, uh, in the Arab world altogether. Um, as for the first question, is it a positive or a negative process? Uh, I think that we already uh, can and have the, the, the right to, uh, to feel unease and to be uh, concerned uh, with the process that, that is happening today. And uh, what we already see uh, after a little bit more than a year since the revolution started, in, uh, first in Tunisia, moving on to uh, Egypt uh, and uh, Libya, uh, now in Syria, Yemen, and uh, I don't think that uh, this process is uh, going to end soon. After Syria, uh, we would have other countries that will fall into this uh, chaotic situation, uh, which is called the Arab Spring. Um, in Israel, we tend to refer to that as the uh, Islamic winter more than the Arab Spring. But, uh, but uh, to, uh, today, uh, after a year and a half, since the process started, what we can see and what we can analyze is the short-term implications of this process and maybe to try to understand what would be the long-term implications of that process. As for, uh, as for the short-term, um, what we see is that uh, states that had these traditional um, regimes, traditional leaderships, uh, becoming much less controllable. The uh, territories becomes uh, uh, uncontrolled territories. The, f the states uh, become failed states uh, and uh, with no concrete uh, statehood capability. And what I describe here, which is true to Libya, we see it in Egypt, that definitely we see it in the northern part of Egypt, in the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, we are starting to see that uh, happening uh, in Syria, Yemen suffered from that for a long period of time. The common denominator of, uh, of those processes is uh, that uh, those territories are becoming heaven for uh, Islamic radical terrorists, extremists, uh, global and local jihadists, which are being rooted and uh, flourishing in those, uh, in those specific territories. Um, so the first thing that we see is the strengthening of the local and global jihadi uh, elements. By the way, the uh, uh, scholars which are analyzing that uh, invented a new term for that, which is glocal. It's a combination of global and local jihadi uh, terrorist activity. And we see this uh, dangerous combination uh, taking, uh, uh, being rooted in different parts of the world, uh, around Libya, around the Maghreb countries, in Africa, Central Africa, uh, and also in the Middle East and other parts of the world. That's the first short-term uh, trend. The second one, which is uh, synergetic to the first one, 
is that those elements, uh, the local jihadi terrorist organizations, are much more uh, weaponized than it used to be prior to the Arab Spring. The first uh, reason, or the immediate, uh, this was an immediate outcome of taking over the uh, military warehouses uh, and weapons of the uh, um, Libyan um, army. Uh, the uh, terrorists, especially the Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb, uh, took over uh, this uh, uh, sophisticated weapon. And first time ever, we see those terrorists uh, being uh, uh, weaponized with uh, sophisticated modern uh, weapons that was never used before by terrorists. But it, it didn't stop there because they immediately transferred this weapon to different parts of the world, especially to parts in which uh, Islamists and jihadists are fighting other groups uh, in those uh, territories that I've described before. We see this weapon being smuggled to Sinai, uh, today to Syria, to Gaza, uh, Gaza Strip uh, to uh, Mali, Nigeria, and so on and so forth. So that's the short-term influence, which is giving uh, much more strength uh, to local and global jihadi terrorists. As for the long term, um, we already heard the uh, spokesman of the Muslim Brotherhood, and uh, I think it gives a, a quite clear understanding that uh, this uh, debate uh, uh, questioning uh, the nature of the Muslim Brotherhood, are they really moderate or not? I think it's a clear answer to, uh, to that question. But even, even if we uh, take under consideration that uh, the Muslim Brotherhoods are moderate, which I beg to differ, but never mind. Even if they are, um, we know already that the Muslim Brotherhood concepts, the ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood, the ideology that was set by Hassan al-Banna and uh, and uh, other ideologists uh, more than 100 years ago, gave birth to the most problematic elements, uh, violent elements of the uh, jihadist terrorism, uh, terrorists in the world. Take, for example, the leader of Al-Qaeda today. The leader of Al-Qaeda today is Awahiri. He uh, is a product of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. He's an Egyptian that was, uh, uh, um, his early education he was getting in the Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, madrasas, schools in Egypt. Yes, uh, he differs from the Muslim Brotherhood today. They have a lot of ideological disputes in the, and uh, uh, he uh, uh, condemned and criticized the Muslim Brotherhood, but nevertheless, the ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood have radicalized him, at least in the beginning of the process, and, uh, and uh, the, the, uh, the outcome was that he was uh, the main ideologist of Al-Qaeda. Another example is Hamas. Uh, Hamas, this uh, terrorist organization, uh, if you read the covenant of Hamas, uh, one of the main uh, articles of the covenant explains that Hamas, by definition, is the Muslim, uh, the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood uh, um, group in, uh, in Palestine. So they refer to themselves, this terrorist organization referred to itself as a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, by the way, the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. Again, the founders of Hamas, Ahmad Yassin, was a Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood uh, um, student. So even for the long term, I would argue that if the uh, Muslim Brotherhood would not support terrorism, would not conduct terrorist attacks, would not support terrorist organization, which uh, still needed to be proven, but if it will be the case, they will invest a lot of resources in doing what? 
in buying more hearts and minds to their ideology that at the end of the day will give birth to these uh, bad seeds that uh, will uh, create splinters from these groups and will intensify uh, the number and the uh, danger coming from uh, those Islamic radical elements altogether. Uh, as for the midterm, uh, and this uh, is concerning Israel, we see that those uh, changes of uh, regimes um, is leading to a much more uh, problematic uh, uh, relations between Israel and Egypt on one hand and strengthening the uh, Salafist element and the uh, uh, Palestinian terrorist organization, both in Gaza and in Sinai. I don't want to get too much into uh, that subject matter because this is not uh, what we discussed today. So going back to the question, is it a positive or a negative uh, process? No doubt in my mind that we are witnessing a very problematic and negative process that would change the uh, face of, uh, of uh, even humanity, definitely the global arena, definitely the Muslim world and the Arab world. And as said before, we are in the beginning or the midst of the process, definitely not the end of that process. Now, what the question is, okay, so what's the connection between this negative process and American foreign policy, or as I said before, the American counterterrorism policy, at least in my view? Um, well, we should uh, call a spade a spade. United States didn't create the Arab Spring, didn't even lead the Arab Spring. It's an authentic process that, uh, um, that, that uh, came as a uh, popular uprising, um, a kind of uh, uh, internal revolutions in those uh, Arab, uh, Arab countries altogether. But I would argue that without the American uh, backwind, uh, without the uh, support that uh, uh, the uh, current uh, presidency in the United States gave to those revolutionaries, uh, being uh, influenced by those uh, positive, naive euphoria that this uh, process is going to lead to a much better and much more stable world, uh, without this backwind, the Arab Spring would not sustain uh, and definitely would not uh, uh, move from one country to another country um, altogether. And, and I'll explain that, that argument. You know, when I was here uh, three years ago as a Corette Fellow, um, it was uh, uh, the time that uh, President Obama won the elections. Um, and uh, the first, I believe it was the first uh, step in, in, in foreign uh, um, policy that, uh, that uh, the President took was what? Was flying to where? Egypt, uh, and, uh, and giving the, uh, the very famous uh, Cairo speech. By the way, he chose uh, to fly to Cairo. Uh, it, it was not a coincidence, because, you, uh, because United States uh, referred to Egypt and referred to the leader of Egypt, President Mubarak, as the main ally of United States in the Arab world, and it was just natural that the, fir the first speech that he will give in sending, conveying his message to uh, the Muslim world will be in Egypt when President Mubarak is uh, uh, beside him. And, um, and the message uh, was uh, quite clear. You know, Islam, we are not in, uh, in any war with Islam, and this is, of course, true. And it was a, an important message. Immediately after the, the speech was taken, I was asked to be interviewed by uh, a TV channel here um, in the region. And uh, the first question that they posed to me is, what is the reaction in Israel a few hours after the, the speech 
uh, to the speech in Cairo. So I said, look, you know, temporarily I, I, I live here in the Bay Area, not in Israel, so I don't know what is the reaction in Israel, but I'm an Israeli. So Israeli, if he doesn't have the answer, he give you an answer in any case. So I would say that uh, in Israel we have right now mixed feelings towards the speech in Cairo. He said, can you elaborate on that? I said, of course, it's a combination of hope and concern. Uh, the uh, concern is that it seems from analyzing the, the speech that uh, using those buzzwords and so on and so forth, it seems that the president do not fully understand the complexity of the situation in the region, uh, the, uh, the problems uh, that we are facing, and, uh, and the hope is that maybe we are wrong and he's right and the outcome would be a much better uh, situation and condition and then we will be one of the first benefactors of that. The second question that was posed to me by the TV channel is, what is the reaction of the Jewish community in the Bay Area? And I said, look, I definitely do not represent the Jewish community in the Bay Area. But since you've asked me, I think that the Jewish community in the Bay Area has mixed feelings towards the speech in Cairo, which is a combination of hope and concern. So I said, so what's the difference between the reaction in Israel and the reaction of the Jewish community in the Bay Area? I said, look, in Israel, we have much more concern and very little hope. In the Bay Area, there is a lot of hope and very little concern. <laughs> Um, in, in a retrospective point of view, I would argue that uh, my concern only grew since then. And the first, uh, uh, the first uh, pillar of this concern came when I listened uh, to uh, the speech that was given by the advisor for counterterrorism to the president, uh, John Brennan. In his speech, when he first introduced the new American counterterrorism policy, one of the first statements was some, something along the lines of... Uh, Terrorism is not the enemy of the United States. Now, excuse me, you are the counterterrorism advisor to the president. You are not the human rights advisor to the president. Um, how can you say such a thing? Yes, I know you are playing good words. As a scholar, sometimes I do the same. Terrorism is a tactic. A tactic cannot be an enemy. Therefore, terrorism is not the enemy of the United States. Fine. But the next statement was even more uh, problematic. And it was saying something along the lines of uh, Islamists and jihadists are not the enemy of the United States. As an outcome of that, I wrote an op-ed in the uh, English uh, Journal of, uh, of Israel, um, and, and I said, if jihadists and the Islamists is not uh, the enemies of the United States, then who is the enemy of the United States? I was arguing there, and this was way back before the Arab, Arab Spring started, what is the message that you are sending to your pragmatic allies in the Muslim countries? And I mentioned as an example President Mubarak, and I said, what is the message that you are sending to President Mubarak, which is life is on stake and being under the concrete risk of being assassinated every day by the jihadists and the Islamists. And by the way, why? Because it's being regarded as the most important American ally in the Arab and the Muslim world. So how can you say that jihadists and Islamists are not the enemy uh, of uh, United States? When I try to analyze what's the differences between the um, two administrations, the Bush administration, and uh, uh, Obama administration in reference to counterterrorism, it's quite clear and you can see immediately the main uh, differences between the, the two policies. First of all, in defining the enemy. President Bush administration uh, defined the enemy as global jihadi terrorism. Um, and President Obama refers to the enemy as uh, secluded um, extremists, Al-Qaeda, and the affiliates of Al-Qaeda. That's the first difference between understanding the scale of the threat uh, that, uh, that the uh, United States and the international community are facing. The second, uh, uh, the second um, 
difference between the two is defining the goal. President Bush was defining the goal, might be too um, wide, but, uh, but it was exterminating and uh, dismantling terrorism wherever it is, uh, which includes, of course, terrorist organizations, uh, supporters of terrorism, state-sponsored terrorism, and so on and so forth. Uh, while President Obama refers to the goal of, uh, or the counterterrorism goal of his policy uh, to exterminate or dismantle Al-Qaeda and the affiliates of Al-Qaeda, which of course is leading to what? To, to the targeted killings type of activity, drone attacks, and so on and so forth. In order to understand the uh, basic differences between the two, I need to refer to what I call the formula of terrorism. What is the formula of terrorism? If, if you ask me if I can conclude everything I learned about terrorism for the last more than 30 years into one sentence, and if this will be the only sentence that you will get from my lecture today, the answer would be positive. Yes, we can condense everything into one sentence. That's, that's the formula of terrorism. The formula of terrorism is a, is a very simple mathematical formula that has two factors, motivation and operational capability. It means when a certain group of people has both, motivation to launch terrorism and operational capability to materialize the motivation, then a terrorist attack or a terrorist campaign would occur. From the formula of terrorism, we can conclude, therefore, what is the formula of effective counterterrorism? The same formula. If you really want to be effective in counterterrorism, you need to counter the operational capability of the terrorists by fighting them, dismantling their capabilities. And you need to deal with the motivation that leads to terrorism. It's not enough to deal with one factor. You need to, uh, to work uh, in both uh, uh, tracks at the same time. Unfortunately, easier said than done because there is a contradiction between the two. Once, once you are trying to limit the operational capability of the terrorists, fighting them, like it or not, you raise their motivation to retaliate. In the literature of counterterrorism, we call it the boomerang effect uh, in counterterrorism. So why did I share this with you? Because I would argue that both presidents and their advisors fully understand the formula of terrorism. They don't need me to explain them the formula of terrorism. And both presidents really try to uh, work or to deal with those two uh, tracks at the same time to counter the operational capability of the terrorist and the motivation. But the differences between the two was what was the emphasis of their policy. While President Bush was emphasizing the, uh, the importance of dealing with the operational capability of the terrorist or dismantling their operational capability, and yes, then deal with motivation that leads to terrorism, President Obama changed the equation and put all, not all, uh, the, the most uh, emphasis on countering the motivation, and uh, yes, he also uh, very active, as we know, in countering the operational capability, but this is a secondary uh, goal. Now, when, uh, when we are talking about zooming in on how do you counter motivation, what's the difference between the two policies in countering the motivation, um, there was a real difference between, and there is a real difference between the two administrations, and here I want to argue that uh, we have to differ between two types of uh, motivations. I call them root causes and instrumental causes. The root causes are really the main reasons and the main motivation that give birth to the terrorist uh, uh, activity. The instrumental causes are uh, um, conditions that are being misused by the terrorists. Now, when we talk about uh, the policy of President Bush, he identified the root causes as those Islamic fundamentalist ideologies that we just uh, heard one of the examples uh, of one of the spokesmen of those uh, elements. 
And uh, this is the root cause that gives birth to terrorists and terrorist activity all over the world. And not only just against uh, Israelis or against uh, uh, Americans uh, or against the Western uh, countries, but also against moderate Muslims altogether. While uh, uh, President Obama administration refers to regional conflict as the causes, but those are instrumental causes. Yes, uh, if you simplistically are referring to what are the reasons that you see the rise of terrorism worldwide, if you take uh, uh, any person in a Muslim country and just question him, he will mention uh, those regional conflict, he will mention poverty and so on and so forth, but those are excuses and those are instrumental causes which are being misused in order to camouflage the real root causes um, altogether. And one thing the United States uh, uh, need to remember all the time, United States was not attacked in 9-11 because anything that United States, because of anything that United States did prior to 9-11, it's not because American so-called colonialism, American so-called exploitations of Muslim land and so on and so forth. United States was attacked in 9-11 and still being the main target of those terrorists worldwide because what United States is, and United States is being regarded as the spearhead of the Western society, of the Western culture, of, uh, of human rights, of liberalism, of modernity. And this is the biggest th uh, threat to the global and the local jihadist. And this is why United States have been attacked, and this is why United States will be attacked uh, in the future, unfortunately. Now, to sum this up, and we need to go back to the turmoil um, in, uh, in the um, Arab Spring. I said that at the beginning in United States, and it was a bipartisan reaction, it was Democrats and Republicans. The reaction was uh, some kind of euphoria. Even the term Arab Spring actually is, uh, is, is referring to a certain type of euphoria uh, um, uh, in, in reference to that, uh, to that specific process, but this was an outcome of two, I would argue, of two misunderstanding uh, that uh, both parties and, and many American citizens, regardless of uh, um, their uh, involvement in this or the other party, uh, are, was falling into. And those two misconceptions, A, was that democracy is a miracle solution to um, violence, uh, political violence, extremism, radicalism and terrorism. That's the first false belief. The second false belief or misconception was that election is democracy. What many Americans unfortunately forgot is that democracy is something which is much bigger than election. Election is a very important apparatus of democracy, but it's one apparatus. Democracy is first and foremost something much more substantial it's a system of values, it's civil society, it's women's lib, it's human rights, it's liberalism. That's what democracy is all about. And if you forget about it and you just use uh, elections and give the ability to fundamentalists to take advantage of this, by doing what? By changing hearts and minds of the people in an ongoing indoctrination, incitement and education for many years. And one day you are giving the ability to those people to choose and to vote, then you get a situation in which fundamentalists are taking over those regimes and those countries and the outcome is one man, one vote, one time. Um, so what's the, uh, what's the conclusion? 
I would argue, although my presentation was quite gloomy, as you can understand, um, but I'm coming from Israel, and uh, you cannot be gloomy uh, living in the, in the bad neighborhood that we are living. You always have to cling to the hope. And I'm still clinging to this specific hope. Um, and the hope is based on the fact that this is only the beginning of the process, negative process, but it's a beginning of the process. And still, a lot can be done, and a lot of influence can, can be conducted in order to change the course of this uh, uh, process. Uh, Egypt, which is one of the most important pillars of the process of the Arab Spring, Egypt still relies a lot on American support, uh, and they cannot uh, sustain without this American support. This American support gives the American administration the leverage which is needed to influence. Uh, it would not make them, uh, it would not take the, the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood uh, poor Americans, uh, liberals, uh, um, or Zionists for that matter. Uh, but it definitely can limit uh, the, this kind of indoctrination. And if there is one recommendation that I can give to the American administration, whoever it will be after the election, is uh, you should give those dollars that you are giving under the condition. And the condition is that those regimes that are now changing uh, would uh, give the right emphasis in introducing the right values uh, to their own uh, constituencies, and you can it, it can be measured. Um, are those processes becoming less dogmatic, less radical, and giving the ability, for example, for NGO human rights uh, activists, uh, the ability to work, what the reaction towards the uh, the rights of uh, women, the rights of minorities, and so on and so forth. Those should be the tests and the measurements in order to make the decision uh, if they are getting the support of the United States or not. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Boaz. And the next speaker will be Professor Berman. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, thank you, Charles, for inviting me here. Uh, and thank you, uh, Boaz, for laying out the, the gloomy account. Um, unfortunately, I have to agree with you in the, in, the, in the estimation. But more importantly, I think I really agree strongly with the conclusion that you articulated at the end so, so clearly. And that is that the American administration, whatever administration it is, is going to be interacting with these regimes. It's going to be interacting with Islamist regimes. Um, it's very important that when it does so, that it makes support and collaboration contingent on uh, demonstrable progress toward liberalization. I come to that conclusion, agree fully, maybe through a somewhat different route. Uh, I can't offer you um, Boaz Gano's detailed knowledge of the, of the region. I'm going to think this through more from the standpoint of um, uh, American foreign policy and um, some of the political theoretical issues at, at stake in the consideration of um, the rise of in Islamism and the uh, abandonment of human rights and democracy, as is the title of this, this colloquium. Uh, five fairly brief points. First, 
I think it's really uh, incumbent on us to recognize that we're talking about a specific case of a more general problem. The specific case is the interaction with the Islamist regimes, which have uh, clearly very, very nasty sides to them. But these are not the only non-democratic regimes in the world. They're not the only regimes that have abused human rights. Uh, and the United States has faced regimes like uh, that, that share that, that nastiness um, time and again. The question recurs in American foreign policy, shall we place values of democracy and human rights in first place, or shall we pursue something else called a realist estimation of, of national interest? Now, one can certainly argue that pursuing those values is fully consistent with national interest. I'd sign on to that, but I'd also say that national interest is often larger than those values, that there are other elements of those values, that one sometimes finds oneself in politics where there are, as the saying goes, very, very strange bedfellows. If we're going to think through how we're going to interact with Islamists in power, it's important to understand the, that, that our idealism has to be interacting with, with our, our realism. Now, what's that mean? Uh, the, there are many regimes that have miserable human rights records that have disappeared from the human rights horizon of American foreign policy or the American press. Shall I count the ways? Zimbabwe, China, Venezuela, Iran, Russia. Human rights issues are not being raised consistently by by the, by the administration nor by the New York Times. All of that has somehow, somehow fallen to, uh, to, 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 to the back pages. This is because uh, there's been a, well, as the, as the title of our conference goes, an abandonment of human rights and democracy. I'd say a rollback of the human rights agenda uh, in, the, in the current administration. It's not explicitly opposed to human rights, but it is not making it a front burner issue the way it has been in the past. When it was a front burner issue in the past, and I don't only mean the George W. Bush administration, I could think of the Clinton administration as well too. When it was a front burner issue, was there absolute consistency? No. Was there hypocrisy in foreign policy? Yes. Should anybody be surprised by that? No. Clearly, there has to be some sense of realistic estimation of competing goods, national interest, uh, human rights, and a, a, um, a, um, a reckoning uh, in Washington as to how best to pursue our values and our interests consistently and, and smartly. One formula for that, again, is what uh, Boaz Ganor said at the end. Yes, we're going to collaborate. We're going to collaborate with these regimes, but at a price. And if they want our support, we have to uh, insist on our values too. Can we insist on our values being adopted overnight? And if they're not, we pull out? That would be counterproductive. We'd be shooting ourselves in the foot. The, the, the influence that we have in those countries would disappear. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be maximized. What our foreign policy should be doing is trying to maximize our input into these, into these, into these countries, both in order to support our values and our national interest. So a specific case of the general problem of realism and idealism. Second is that, of course, it's not just a general case. This is a regional issue. 
as we consider the response to the rise of Islamism, let's not forget that it's not only the Islamist regimes in the Middle East that have had miserable human rights records or miserable records on democracy. We have to, we have to face up to the reality of the Assad regime, and the, the Mubarak regime, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, there's a deep problem with the viability of liberal or democratic uh, practices in, in that region. That could lead to a long examination of U.S. foreign policy toward, toward these regimes. Luckily today, our concern is primarily the, 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 the interaction between Washington and the regimes of the post-Arab Spring world. Those are the Islamist regimes we're talking about. And we should ask whether there's a specificity to this kind of interaction. Will the pursuit of a notional liberalization of a uh, Morsi regime in Egypt look a lot different from the strategies that Washington might have deployed vis-a-vis -vis Mubarak? I don't know, but those are the terms that we should be, we should be, we should be asking. The um, third point is that there's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of room between a zero and one. Um, as we face the post-Arab Spring Islamist regimes, as we face these regimes which initially appeared to emerge out of a democratic groundswell and now have so often uh, disappointed us in their illiberalism, in their tolerance for extremism, uh, in their hostility to minorities, as we face these regimes, what, what, how, how can the United States articulate a human rights or a democracy agenda? Now, in the abstract, there are two extremes. We could say we won't deal with them at all. We will boycott them. They're miserable. Look at what they're doing to their own people. Let's pull out. I don't see how that would serve anyone's interest. But to say that means that Washington is going to be working with Islamist regimes. And that's a not obvious conclusion to come to. Of course, the alternative to that, to that zero, that absolute boycott, is the full, full court press at one. And that would be to say, well, in order to interact with these regimes, we're going to refrain from making any criticism whatsoever. We're going to uh, turn a blind eye to their abuse of their minorities. We're going to turn a blind eye to their, 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 um, their anti-Semitism or their attacks on women or et cetera, et cetera. This is also not a sustainable position. It's not a sustainable position, although it might be being sustained at this moment. Uh, this is not a sustainable position because it, it, it abandons a significant component of what the United States has to stand for in that regime. It's going to make the United States, it is making the United States look weak. It's undermining US influence. It makes us seem um, embarrassed by the legacy for which we have for which we have fought. Where we have, to, where we have to work is in between zero and one, between the boycott and the full accommodation. Now to do that, point four, means that we have to try to use the word moderate and Islamist in the same sentence. My point is not to say that Islamism or the Muslim Brotherhood is really moderate, as some would argue. I agree with Boaz Ganor's criticism of that position. Uh, 
But I also think that we have to recognize that the Muslim Brotherhood and the Islamists in, in power are going to face uh, internal diversification. They're going to face generational differences. They're going to face differences between those who fought in the streets and those who came up through the bureaucracy. They're facing all of the burdens of any party coming into power. All of a sudden, they have to make the city work. All of a sudden, they have to, they have to run the state. There will be radicals, and there will be pragmatists. It's crucial that the United States be smart in its foreign policy. Be smart means being able to make differentiations. Being smart also means being able to use subterfuge. I sure as hell wish that I were more convinced the United States were engaged in covert activities. I would be happy if I knew that the United States had, um, had agents within the Muslim Brotherhood. I'm not sure that, that, that we're doing this as, as well as we might. Um, my initial area of scholarship was, um, was Germany and Europe, and the United States was deeply involved in undermining communist influence in Western Europe in the, in the, uh, the post-Second Second World War, War era. Some of this was overt, some of this was covert. I think we need more of that robust engagement with the political process in order to wield American influence. To do that, we would need a government that had the, 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 the language ability, the cultural knowledge, and the, and the, and the smarts to, to work, work through that complex world. I don't think we've been making the investment in, in, that, in that human capital, uh, but it's not too, too late to, to, to start. What would it mean to transform transform potential targets in Islamist movements toward a moderate position. I think it would be, it would require us to imagine Islamist politics undergoing over a couple of decades the same kind of transformation that, um, that right-wing Christian political movements underwent in Europe after the Second World War. Movements that were close to fascist regimes have, over decades, become thoroughly center-right, uh, thoroughly democratic, thoroughly liberal um, political forces. Fifth, um, I agree with Boasganor that what we mean by democracy is more than um, more than an election. It means a um, uh, a, a whole panoply of institutions and uh, respect for rights and rule of law. Therefore, the mere fact of masses in the streets or 51% of the vote does not democracy make. Nonetheless, it's very, very difficult to... to to, to wean the term democracy, especially in a post-dictatorial environment, from that, from that image of the majority rules. There is something very majoritarian about democracy, about the appeal of democracy, uh, particularly in a post-dictatorial setting. And what we're appealing for here when we, talk about, when we talk about human rights is really the legacy of liberalism the legacy of, of individual rights. The, the, the Arab Spring regimes, as Islamist as they may become, as 
repressive as they may become, are going to be able to wield the aura of having emerged democratically. Democratically in an illiberal fashion, but nonetheless democratically. This is part of that, the political uh, situation that we are going to have to face if the United States is going to engage with these cultures um, successfully. Um, just one last remark. Uh, I do believe there's been a tragic rollback in the importance of human rights in uh, US foreign policy uh, over the past few years. Um, part of that is a, uh, a, a, a function of the fear that any advocacy of human rights automatically leads to war. Part of it is a function of the thoroughly justifiable war wariness in parts of the public. Surely part of it is a, an effect of the failure of political leadership to articulate the priority of, of human rights. But I don't think that the weakness of American foreign policy in this part of the world, Benghazi, I don't think that the weakness of American foreign policy in this part of the world is a function solely of, let me put it this way, our post-democratic foreign policy, our foreign policy willing to work so well with undemocratic regimes. I think it's a function of a global foreign policy of the, uh, characterized by a retraction of American power. So it's not just the values issue, it's the generalized retraction of American power around the world that, that, that gives sustenance to anti-democratic forces here and elsewhere. Because it's American foreign policy throughout the past century that has been the, the sole and singular and most consistent advocate for liberal democratic transformation in the world despite all the moments of hypocrisy. And as that power retracts, so does the, the, the tide of democratization. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Berman. And the next speaker is Abe Sofer. And I think it's an interesting segue into a whole uh, related subject. Yes. I will not pretend to ch thank Charles for putting me through this work. Um, we, uh, but I do thank him for putting me out here with you guys. And I appreciate your coming. And uh, uh, looking at this very, very difficult subject. I, uh, I will just take off from where Russell uh, took us um, because I think that um, uh, while Boaz is uh, right, as he always is, about these uh, issues of uh, terrorism and counterterrorism, um, we have a situation that we have to deal with. We have to manage it. Um, and we made uh, the mistakes we made um, uh, much earlier, uh, and to the extent that we contributed to the Arab Spring or the disorderliness of the Arab Spring, um, we have to learn the lessons that are relevant 
from that experience and apply them uh, to our present situation. I had the privilege of serving um, in the years when we engaged with the Soviet Union. Um, and when we, and I also had the uh, uh, privilege of, of uh, negotiating many things uh, with the Soviets and with the Middle Eastern countries. Um, and I can tell you that uh, in the course of that experience, I felt then and uh, am as convinced now as I was then that we had two very different policies about freedom and democracy. Uh, when it came to the Soviet Union, uh, we uh, challenged uh, them, uh, of course, uh, to the extent they challenged us. But whatever we were negotiating with them, uh, everyone um, at my, even below my level in the, in the, in the administration, um, was told to raise certain issues about freedom and democracy and human rights with our Soviet interlocutors at every occasion where we met them. Now, you may think that that is a very formalistic point, but you're wrong if you do. Because when a major country, in its engagement with another major country, persistently raises issues uh, of one kind or another, it is a signal to that country that it places a value on those issues and that it is willing to pay a price for uh, performance or reaction, positive reaction, uh, to the requests concerning those issues. So when we went whatever we were talking about, sovereign immunity, whatever, the kinds of issues I talked about, um, I, uh, uh, spying, uh, interesting stuff, um, we would raise issues about human rights. Uh, we would present names of people that uh, we believe should be released from prison or allowed to leave the Soviet Union. Now, when we dealt with the Arab states, um, they were uh, just as tyrannical in many ways to their uh, people, um, perhaps even more brutal, uh, as, shall we say, especially to Islamists. Uh, that was true in uh, Lebanon. It was true in Egypt. Um, it is true that, um, that the number one of al-Qaeda today is, uh, is, uh, learned his lessons in the Muslim Brotherhood and uh, but um, the bitterness that he feels toward uh, e Egypt and the West uh, stemmed from the brutality, at least in part, with which he was treated and imprisoned in, uh, in Egypt uh, for many, many years, uh, largely because of his uh, 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 commitment to a uh, form of government that Mubarak would, uh, would not even permit to be voted on. Um, and um, this was true of Hezbollah in Lebanon, where they were not allowed to vote. Uh, the Shia were treated terribly in, in Lebanon. We uh, uh, were uh, formalistic in our raising of these issues of freedom and democracy, at best. 
when it came to the Arab world. We would raise these uh, issues from time to time uh, with the Arab leaders. And uh, they would uh, knowingly uh, turn to us and say, uh, if you knew the Egyptian people, the Falahim, if you knew uh, how ignorant they are, uh, if you only understood how, uh, how crazy they are about their religion, uh, if, you, uh, um, uh, if you knew these things, you wouldn't be su su suggesting these silly, these silly remedies or these silly ideas of uh, freedom and democracy. Uh, you, you, we are doing what you need. We are providing stability. We are providing security. We are providing you with uh, um, a form of partnership in, in the war against uh, uh, the Soviet Union and uh, an even more evil uh, force uh, of that ideology. And these uh, Islamists ultimately um, are, are hate us and hate you and uh, hate secularism, and they would be uh, more of a problem than, than, than then, that is with democracy, with freedom, than they would be now. Well, um, we gave in to that. Um, we, uh, we gave in to uh, their uh, protestations that they should not be pushed into freedom. Whereas with the Soviets, we never gave in. We kept pressing. We kept making deals. We got people out. Um, we created regimes where they uh, committed themselves to a set of uh, human ideals uh, that everyone thought was a joke until they really started being implemented uh, at a certain point. You have, to, you have to, as George Schultz always said, uh, 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 diplomacy is like a garden. And you have to, uh, some seasons, plant seeds. Other seasons, uh, water the plants. And other seasons, uh, take the fruits uh, of your work. And uh, we were not uh, working that way uh, in these dictatorships, uh, whereas we were uh, with the Soviet Union. So I am not here, I mean, uh, to, uh, as an expert, on uh, this literature that I have <laughs> periodically been exposed to and overwhelmed by, which talks about Orientalism and um, uh, the American effort now underway to, um, to basically take over Islam and teach Islam in a new way, and, um, and the whole question of uh, are there really liberal Islamists or uh, conservative ones? Uh, my sense of it is that uh, we have a lot of influence in the world today. And I don't believe this uh, stuff about how we're, uh, uh, we're over the hill, uh, we're weak. Um, we're not weak, uh, and we could have a huge impact on freedom in the world. And um, every now and then um, we see uh, when uh, Secretary Clinton spoke up about uh, cyber uh, freedom in, in China, uh, it, it was a huge, it was a sensational statement uh, that uh, created a wave of excitement uh, around the world. Uh, we can do that, and uh, we need to do that. Uh, and we have a number of countries in which uh, our foreign policy uh, could have a huge impact if, if, it were, if it were applied in a principled manner, uh, which sent that message 
uh, that message of value, that we value your doing these things and we will, we will reward you for doing them. And as Russell said, part of this is we've got to tell them, if you don't do that, we're not going to reward you. Indeed, we're not going to support uh, this program or that program. Uh, and we are, in fact, uh, going to uh, have you pay a price uh, because we really are concerned about this. Now, what is the message you send there? Not only a diplomatic message, but a human message. Because I always felt, you know, being a child of the Middle East, um, I've always uh, been a little bit uh, torn by this exp the experiences I've had growing up in a home where Arabic was spoken, where uh, at parties we would have uh, belly dancers uh, and not rock and roll. Um, the, as an Iraqi Jew, uh, I've always, of course, been heartbroken that, um, that the Arabs of the world have turned against the Jews uh, uh, in the way they have. But let's not forget that uh, despite this man who I would, uh, who, uh, who uh, we saw Charles put up on the uh, screen here, who I would love to, uh, I would love to uh, confront him someday, alone in a in a in a in a room somewhere. Uh, I would, I, I certainly would not spare him, uh, uh, as he would not spare my people, uh, or uh, you know whatever whatever people he decided were his enemy. But let's be real about this. Uh, the Christians killed six million Jews, uh, not the Arabs. Uh, the Muslims, uh, if, you were to, if you were to take the million or so Jews that were in the Muslim world and you ask how many of them were killed in that period after the, uh, during the Second World War and afterwards, right up until the, the, the 800,000 of them migrated uh, out, out of their countries, it would be in the hundreds not even thousands, in the hundreds. So uh, one, must, one must send this message uh, to uh, the people of these Muslim countries that uh, you are, uh, we, America, uh, we are on their side. Because when we gave in to those dictators, what I felt above all else as a, a person who grew up in, uh, in, that, in that other kind of culture, uh, was that we were siding with the tyrants, not only in what they did, but in their perception of their people, in the fundamentally deep condescension that they had uh, toward their own, uh, their own nationals. And uh, that was a disastrous uh, uh, policy, ultimately. Uh, and the consequences are very real. Uh, we can feel it uh, in the resentment uh, that has grown up among those people. And we have to combat it by adopting the kind of strength and commitment to freedom that paid off for us so well uh, with the foreign policy uh, that we uh, implemented vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Soviet Union. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Abe Sofer. And the final uh, speaker will be Lieutenant Colonel Brian Lindville. And then after, we'll have uh, time for questions. 
I'd like to thank you all for attending today, and uh, Charles, in World Series terms, I'd like to thank you for allowing me to bat cleanup in this uh, four-speaker sweep of the topic of U.S. foreign policy and radical Islam. Uh, what I'd like to do for you today is provide you kind of a ground perspective, uh, speaking as a former U.S. diplomat in the region, and give you an idea of some of the challenges that we've faced in the region and in Libya specifically. And then also uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the tools that we have in the diplomat's kit bag and specifically in the Department of Defense's uh, uh, kit bag to uh, do the engagement with these countries and provide leverage when we're talking about our, our foreign policy. So first of all, uh, one of the things that I noticed uh, in Libya was that anti-Semitism is alive and well. And Gaddafi certainly was never one to miss an opportunity to use it for political advantage. Uh, I distinctly recall that in 2008, 2009, during the uh, military operations in Gaza, uh, the, the demeanor of uh, Libyan radio changed and, and television changed overnight. You went from you know, uh, some typical uh, Arabic Islamic music to suddenly 24-7 bombardment of uh, radio call-in shows uh, talking about the uh, Israeli attack into uh, Gaza. And you also had an instance where they were pulled up old uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser speeches, and they would just run those around the clock, uh, hyping up the people uh, with hourly news updates about the combat and the, the uh, reported suffering that was going on inside of Gaza. So, you know, Gaddafi very clearly taking every advantage he could of that to twist it to his advantage and show himself as a champion of this particular cause. And what I think it will be interesting to see is now in Libya, and especially I, I think because the, uh, the political dynamic is a little bit different than what you're seeing on the right and left, with Egypt and Tunisia, you know, in the next circumstance where there is a crisis involving uh, Israel and the, the Palestinians, uh, how much will the government try to exploit that to political advantage, if at all? And if so, what will the U.S. response be? I think in the case of Gaddafi, um, unfortunately, we largely remain, remain silent. Um, and I think that with the, because at that time, he was, uh, he was doing everything that we were asking him to do. He uh, reportedly turned over all his WMD, although secretly kept some of that back. Um, he'd paid off the Lockerbie victims and uh, set the conditions for us to reestablish diplomatic relations. Well, now, you know, all that will be behind us, and we'll be able to confront the Libyan government on, a, on an evil, uh, even level playing field. Uh, a second dynamic that we that we faced in Libya was just the the uh, almost um, saddening level of ignorance that uh, Gaddafi left with his education system. Uh, there was a point in probably the 80s and 90s where Gaddafi actually outlawed English language instruction, and what that created is this lost generation of Libyans that have zero English language skills. You know, uh, a gentleman, in my experience, gentlemen in their late 50s, 60s and above uh, who had had the opportunity to travel abroad, even train in the United States back in the 60s, 
had pretty solid English language skills. And then your young youths, the Shabab on the streets uh, through the hip hop generation, they had picked up some English through music and other ways. But this, this middle, the, the middle 30s into the late 40s, uh, these folks had no foreign language skills and a complete inability to really relate with the outside world. Everything they got was through the Arab press. They didn't have other means to really look around and comprehend the world and take on some of these larger issues, which I think made them more susceptible to uh, Islamic extremism in some of these circumstances. Um, and from, from our perspective, and it's something I'll talk about a little bit further on, that was one of the first areas of concern for the U.S., not just the uh, Department of Defense, but also from the State Department side, was addressing this shortage of English language skills and looking for ways to uh, improve the average Libyan's ability to communicate with us. Um, and then the third aspect, uh, something that I noticed while I was there, was the uh, way that Gaddafi, over his 42-year reign, had robbed Libya of institutions. He'd put all the power in his hands, all the decisions went through him, and institutions, if any, were just a facade. You know, the judiciary couldn't make a ruling without actually getting the ruling from Gaddafi himself. So now, post-revolution, you have a complete lack of any trusted institutions. The judiciary has no experience in making legal rulings. You've got a military that has no experience in strategic thought and strategic planning. You've got a police force that has no experience in operating in any other way than a corrupt fashion. So uh, Libya, especially more so than uh, Tunisia and Egypt on the right and left, has to overcome that, establish those institutions before they can stand any chance of really moving forward in, in a promising way. And it's notable, too, that this will not happen overnight. Just as an example, it takes 15 years to grow an army lieutenant colonel. And Gaddafi robbed the army of its younger generations. He took all the lieutenants and captains and majors, and he put them in his regime protection units. Those units have been destroyed, disbanded, they may have been killed or fled. And now you've got an army with no junior officer corps. So in terms of just the military institution, there is no hope in that being a healthy entity for another decade at least. And that's from the first day that they get the training programs together to put them on the path towards that success. So with, all those, with those factors in the background, uh, I want to briefly touch on what uh, we, the Department of Defense, kind of bring to the table when we're interacting with the Libyan military and with the Egyptian military and with the Tunisian military. These are kind of the, the elements of uh, U.S. soft power that we have to interact with these North African uh, Arab uh, awakening countries. Notably, it's carrots and sticks. The sticks are going to have to remain behind our back for the time being. We're going to be strictly talking about the carrots. And this is a quick listing of what the types of, of tools that we have. So the uh, foremost among all of these, number one, is our International Military Education and Training Program. Um, in Libyan terms, we've given them a few hundred thousand dollars. We've given uh, Tunisia a few million, and we've given Egypt tens of millions. And uh, 
one important consideration about this, though, is that these are going to the military, and typically the, in these Arab militaries, you'll find your more secular elements. Uh, I never really encountered a, a hardcore Islamist in the ranks of the Libyan military. He wouldn't have been welcome there. And I think that probably applies in both Egypt and Tunisia as well. But I met the International Military Education and Training Program is our flagship program to bring uh, foreign officers from around the world, but in this case from the Middle East, to the United States and train them in our professional military education programs. For example, uh, while I was in Libya, uh, for the first time in 40 years, we brought a uh, Air Force colonel to the United States to attend our uh, Air Command and Staff College. We also brought a naval officer to attend the Naval War College. Um, unfortunately, this was only two guys out of a, you know, a population of six million, so a very, very small beginning. Uh, another, uh, uh, another objective that IMET is used for is for English language training. So another activity that we were conducting on the ground while I was there in Libya was the purchase of English language computer learning centers that we would take to Libya, install in military designated facilities, and that would be used to give these officers a baseline English language uh, capability that, that they would then bring to the United States when they were entered into some of these other professional military education programs. So that's IMET. The second one would be the uh, foreign military funding or foreign military sales. Foreign military funding typically is when it's U.S. dollars being used to buy the equipment. Foreign military sales is when it's foreign dollars used to buy U.S. military equipment. Uh, and the disparity is very large in North Africa. Uh, Egypt receives a foreign military funding allocation that is uh, second only to Israel's allocation. Uh, and then on the Tunisian side, it's much less, a few million. And on the, uh, on the Libyan side, in fact, it was only about 150K, and in the future it's going to go to zero. The expectation being that with Libya's oil wealth, they'll be able to afford a lot of this military support, military equipment, and it won't have to be U.S. dollars funding it. So in the Libyan context, there won't be as much leverage there. I think on the Egyptian side, and to a lesser extent on the Tunisian side, that will be an element where we will maintain a significant uh, ability to leverage and influence, influence their decisions. But again, you're influencing more secular elements. You're talking about the military. If you pull that away, you might weaken some of our best allies inside of the country. Uh, another tool that we were pulling upon was the uh, presidential drawdown. Uh, President Obama, during the Libyan Revolution, authorized a $25 million worth of equipment off the shelf in U.S. stocks to be provided to the Libyan uh, revolutionaries in order to support their rebellion against Gaddafi. Notably, this was non-lethal non equipment. That $25 million amount is about close to zeroed out now. There's a small amount remaining available for Libya. Um, theoretically, an additional drawdown could be approved, but that would be a very, very rare circumstance. But again, it's another tool that is potentially available. Uh, another piece that we pulled on was the Excess Defense Articles Program. And this is a program where the U.S. military takes 
uh, some of our old equipment that we don't want to use anymore, it's worn out, or it's simply, uh, it's been replaced by other equipment. For example, uh, we had Humvees in our fleet, the Hummers, which were replaced by armored vehicles that were resistant against uh, explosive, improv uh, improvised explosive devices. Now we have a lot of Humvees available, and I know the Libyans are interested in acquiring some of that old equipment at bargain basement prices. Um, an important point that a Libyan general told me was that, you, and you'll see it on TV a lot of times, the Libyan military is driving around in Toyota pickups. And when they do that, they look no different than the militias that they're going to confront. Furthermore, uh, you know, the, the, the vehicles are subject to theft. So the Libyan general said, look, you get us some Vs. When we drive into a city where there's an uprising, we're going to look different, we're going to look legitimate, and people will instantly recognize that the Libyan government has arrived and will have a better ability to, uh, to pacify the situations. Furthermore, if you give us Humvees, for example, if one of those is stolen, there will be no doubt where that vehicle came from, and other militias won't be able to abscond with Libyan military vehicles. So the EDA program, we were looking at, at Humvees and additionally uh, some old Marine helicopters, CH-46C Knights, were being uh, proposed to uh, the Libyans, as well as spare parts and some other opportunities. Uh, another area, and this would be at a little bit higher level, at a more institutional level, uh, uh, Secretary Panetta authorized a program called the Defense Institute Reform Initiative, or DIRI. And what DIRI does is on a intermittent basis sends in a team of uh, military institution experts to take a look at the Libyan system and make recommendations to the Libyan military on how they can better improve, how they can reform their defense institutes to better uh, manage their military. And this is also a program that has been used elsewhere, although I'm not a, I don't think it's been used in, uh, in Egypt or Tunisia yet. Um, then an, another program available was uh, United States Africa Command, General Ham's uh, combatant command located in Stuttgart, Germany. Uh, played a large role in overseeing all of the U.S. military engagement in Libya. And uh, he had a small budget available where we could introduce uh, military officers to, uh, to U.S. institutions. So for a week, you could bring a group of, say, three to five Libyan officers to the United States, show them our infantry training school, you know, show them our, our uh, signal corps or, or something along those lines to introduce them the way we do business and give them ideas about how they can interact with us in the future. Um, notably, this program is only available in Libya and Egypt from Africa Command. The United States Central Command has responsibility for Egypt. So there's a little bit of a, uh, a strategic divide uh, in the U.S. military there uh, that affects our ability to influence the region and, and the decisions that are made. Then uh, another tool that we had a little bit broader is called the Trans-Sahara Counter-Terrorism Program. This is a program that involves all of the North African countries, uh, minus Libya, who has been offered membership but has not joined, and Egypt, which was considered, since it was in the CENTCOM region, was not offered a membership. And this is a, in addition to being a pool of funds, it's also a pool of programs, such as intelligence training that can uh, provide 
uh, all our partner countries in North Africa an ability to interact and cooperate in confronting the, uh, the terrorism threat there. And then uh, finally, the last uh, two topics I want to talk very briefly about, uh, U.S. Special Forces, U.S. Special Forces Command Africa had some engagement programs where it was, it was looking at ways that it could interact with the Libyan Special Forces. And also our U.S. Army Africa, uh, which is a subcomponent of AFRICOM, was looking at methods to bring in units that now that we've drawn down in Iraq and are preparing to draw down in Africa, the goal was to align U.S. Army brigades on a regional basis. And the intent being that a U.S. brigade would be made available for partnership activities across North Africa and specifically in Libya. So in what it would look like on the ground is you might bring in a platoon or a company of infantrymen and they could do a, a medical training exercise or a, a parachute jump or other activities with uh, our partner countries. So um, again, very briefly, that's an overview of the, the kinds of ways that we are on the ground able to interact with uh, foreign gover governments' militaries and influence the process there. And I think as we go forward, um, the important piece will be that we do this on a partnership basis. Uh, the Libyans especially are very sensitive to the presence of foreign military in their country. And uh, we don't make any uh, indications that there will be any intent to base U.S. troops in the region because that's another really uh, sensitive point. But the real art will be uh, taking those tools and best applying them towards the challenges of influencing foreign militaries and foreign governments, and perhaps even developing additional tools beyond what I've just laid out here that will best give us the ability to leverage U.S. power uh, to positively influence the changes that we're seeing in North Africa and across the Middle East. And I thank you very much for your attention today. Thank you. So thank you very much, all of you. So now we're, we're going to open it up to questions. And I'm going to pass around some mics for you. You can speak into the mic. I actually have 12 questions, but I'll ask only one. Just to tell you my background, I'm a professor of geophysics at Stanford, and I've been looking at uh, fossil energy worldwide issues for many years here. So my question is really related to Saudi Arabia. First of all, um, the biggest terror uh, uh, operation was run by Saudis, not Egyptians. Egyptians gave some kind of ideology, but uh, bin Laden was a Saudi. Um, and Saudi Arabia is a real big elephant in this picture. It's the single most important uh, most Arab country not Muslim, but Arab. And it's so important because it has uh, one quarter of all the oil reserves on Earth. And uh -huh. the United States has supported the regime of the Saudi uh, government since shortly after World War II, realizing that that resource is going to be so critical for us. Now, <coughs> in Saudi Arabia, you may not know that, but the oil is owned by the royal family, not by the country. 
It's, there's only one other country in the world that's like that. This resource is not even owned by the nation. It's owned by the royal family. And so uh, it's pretty clear, at least to me, that what bin Laden is all about, his movement, is the injustice, intolerable injustice, that this situation has created. It is not about anti-Semitism. It's <coughs> not about Israel. It's not about Palestinians. It's about Saudis, who, uh, whose standard of living has been declining in the last uh, 20 years or so. And um, the royal family is just extremely abusive. And we have made it possible for them to stay in power. So my question is, what happens if a bin Laden-type uprising in Saudi Arabia eventually will succeed, like it did in in Iran. Are we prepared for it? Are we willing to face up to the situation as it is now and the consequences of this injustice? And um, so that's, that's the biggest question that, that I had out of my 12 uh, lists. Thanks. Does anybody on the panel? Take a shot at that. Sure. Uh, I would just say that um, uh, if, as I said, the lessons that we've learned have to now be applied. And Saudi Arabia and Bahrain are two countries where um, if, we, if we didn't learn anything else from what we've seen with Tunisia and Egypt and um, Libya and Syria, uh, we should at least have learned that uh, there's now going to be a real strong possibility of movements like that and consequences like that in other countries that they haven't reached yet. Jordan, of course, uh, is a, a more moderate government, but it's also another country I worry about a lot. And I know Boaz does, and the people at his conference were very worried about it. So uh, I was not speaking in the abstract. I mean that we should go out now and start uh, working with the Saudis to change things on the ground. Um, and when I say change things, I don't mean just, you know, modify the royal regime. I'm talking about have them realize that there is no future in the long run for that kind of a regime in this world. And Pakistan is another country. I mean, we have just been so uh, gentle with Pakistan for so long because of their uh, alliance with us against the Soviet Union, which was very important to us, important enough so that we allowed them to get nuclear weapons without really pushing back enough to keep them from doing it. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that this is just as we, we, we seem to feel that, it's, that this is not urgent. But it is urgent. We should be there. Our diplomats should be there. Every time we go there, we should have a, we should have a set of talking points, a plan some kind of a uh, 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 some kind of an approach to prevent um, what will happen there, which will be these jihadis will take over, and if there's a crisis there, it's not going to be easy to manage. It's going to lead to this kind of very uh, uh, challenging situation, uh, rather than a, a transition that that would very much favor stability. I would uh, also refer to the question, uh, which I think it's a very good one and, and 
raise a very complicated subject matter because um, the Saudis, I agree with you, are uh, an important factor in, in our discussion and we, uh, because of the short of the time we, we didn't refer to. Uh, the Saudis played a very negative uh, role uh, in the last uh, few decades in uh, introducing and uh, inducing the, uh, um, the extreme um, interpretation of, uh, of Islam. Um, and we know that most of the uh, worst uh, um, education, uh, radical Islamic education, was uh, funded and supported by either the government of uh, Saudi Arabia or by specific princes uh, from Saudi Arabia. Uh, but they released the genie from the bottle. And this genie uh, actually is now threatening them as well. Um, Bin Laden, in my view, and here I, I beg to differ, uh, Bin Laden, in my view, was not conducting 9-11 um, because he wanted to uh, uh, change the Saudi regime or the Saudi uh, regime behavior towards uh, uh, Saudis and Muslims uh, all over the world. Bin Laden was actually uh, conducting this attack uh, in believing in a divine command uh, that uh, uh, leads him to create a caliphate state um, all over the world. That's the concept of global jihadism. That's the concept of uh, al-Qaeda. And the uh, regime in Saudi Arabia, as extreme as he was and still is in a way, uh, was not extreme enough in his views. And yes, you are right, uh, down the wall, they would like to see the change of regime in this, uh, in this country uh, as well. But when we are talking about the policy towards Saudi Arabia, there is another elephant in the room that we didn't discuss at all, and this is Iran. Uh, and there is a, um, a common denominator in the interests of Saudi Arabia today and United States and many other uh, Muslim countries, and even in a way Israel, uh, in trying to stop the uh, Iranian Shiite regime uh, from uh, on top of be, uh, being already uh, an oil uh, superpower, becoming also a military superpower by, nu by the uh, nuclearization of the uh, military um, capabilities. This is a grave risk to the region. This is a, a, an enormous risk to Saudi Arabia. Um, and uh, I think that based on that common denominator, United States and the American foreign policy can influence uh, the activities of the Saudi regime uh, today. I think uh, in the near term, the you know, if you were to ask a, a Saudi prince, his top concern might not be with uh, Sunni jihadists. Uh, during uh, 2003, 2004, when the there was a bombing at the Saudi security headquarters. That was a tremendous wake up to the Saudi regime. And from that point on, they really stepped up their efforts to clamp down on the activities of uh, Sunni jihadists in their country. And I think since then, you've, you've seen the country has done a very good job of keeping control of that element of their society. Uh, I, just to echo what Boaz just mentioned, I think their real concern right now is the Shia. And uh, case in point, their intervention in Bahrain was entirely driven by their fear of their own Shia population uh, being able to take advantage of the unrest, 
along the Shia and Bahrain, and that expanding into the, the, the Saudi realm. So, And the frustration from uh, the American reluctancy to be involved in this uh, campaign. Yes. That's, uh, so, um, again, I think... That's where the Shia sit. That's where the population. But, but it's not. A, it's not a good, uh, long-lasting strategic perspective. I agree that stability is uh, uh, very, very important. But we should have learned that if you have a country like Bahrain, where you have a vast majority Shia population, and you are not allowing them to vote, that you have a serious problem in the modern world. Uh, and it's inconsistent with our values. And so you have to think through the problem with, with a broader perspective than, um, than what we've done in the past. I'm not saying that I'm totally with you. We have to maintain stability. But um, we, have to, we have to have a broader agenda uh, when it comes to these, these situations. Professor Berman? Yeah. Um, we have to have... Um a consistency in the articulation of our values. Here I'm in full agreement with Abe. Um, <clears throat> and I think we can call for a consistent advocacy of our values in full knowledge of the fact that we'll also be hypocritical. Um, we'll be, we should be advocating for democratization in Saudi Arabia in discrete and indiscreet ways simultaneously. Mm -hmm. We're not going to be doing this in a serious way vis-a-vis -vis China. Just not going to happen. Uh, uh, it ought to be from a moral standpoint, but it's not going to happen. Now, I think the, we should be consistent in our advocacy of our values. We should be engaging politically on multiple levels, overt and covert. We should be working with the regime, and we should be working with the opposition as well. We should have friends in all camps. But most importantly, I think the problem is what Boaz just said. It's the reluctance of the United States to show leadership in this part of the world. The mixed messages that have been coming out of Washington uh, again and again on issue after issue in the past, in the past uh, three years has just had an extraordinarily deleterious impact on the, the, um, the capacity of the United States to influence regimes. Abe is right. The United States is strong. We have the potential. But potential doesn't mean effect. Effect is only if you utilize your potential. If I may, actually, as a Canadian a person born in Canada, Stephen Harper has been extraordinarily clear and mm -hmm. strong when it yeah. comes to confronting radical Islam. And I think it's gained Canada some standing in the international community. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. there isn't a, you know, we don't have a navy or a military to back it up. But morally, They've taken a very strong position, and I think it's projected some sort of image of power. Okay, well, we won't have a navy soon either. Pardon? We won't have <laughs> a navy soon either. Right. So, but my question would be, um, I was involved as a young uh, student and later as a young adult in the anti-apartheid movement. Can South Africa and the anti-apartheid movement serve as, a, as an example of how to deal with the, sort of the rise of radical Islam and the Arab Spring and questions of democracy? In South Africa, during the transition period, the international community was very stringent in, in, in ensuring that there was an interim constitution that was implemented and all the parties that were becoming part of the new South Africa had to sign on to. Institutions were created, democratic institutions were created. 
parties had to sign on and participate. There was a culture of social democracy, of citizenship. The parliament, there was an election. The parliament, the first thing they did was ratify the constitution. They created democratic institutions in society. And I think you can make the argument that South Africa is trying, has succeeded to some extent in creating a democracy. Can the United States then insist, as, uh, as you were saying, uh, Abe, in discussions in the Middle East that there has to be institutions that are in place that are democratic and that voting is not democracy, that there are many elements to democratic institutions and society that need to be implemented and the, the United States should demand that? Can they demand that? Well, it's not a matter of demanding it in a primitive sense. It's, it, it, it's, it's really like Warren said, it's, you have to have a, Russell said, you really have to have a policy. You have to sit down and work and actually draft and think about and discuss and engage with people about um, what set of ideas and steps are going to be useful to bring about that situation, a more stable situation consistent with our values and the values that are stated in the UN Charter. And, you know, we. We went along, I was appalled when we went along in Afghanistan with these qualifications of women's educational rights, other, other things. I just, you know, there are certain things that we can start doing pretty soon. And one of them is when someone we are working with insists on doing something that really is unacceptable to us, we should walk away. We should, oh yeah, sure, we'll, go, we'll help you, we'll continue to cooperate, but we are not going to be part of that regime because we stand for certain things. So I think, you know, you have to make a judgment on each issue, but if you don't have a thought-out program the way we did in the Reagan administration vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union, we really had a program. If you don't have a program, you're going to flounder. That's all there is to it. You can't be naive. You can't go in there and start talking about, you know, give up power and all this kind of stuff. And you have a chaos on your hands, as we have now. You, you, you've got you've to have a better situation. You aim for, a, aim for a stable transition in these situations to a better. And that, that's the kind of foreign policy we need. Uh, I'm a visiting scholar from Japan, and uh, thank you for your all. Uh, all the presentation is very interesting, even though we have uh, this small group of audience. Uh, I have a basic question. Uh, we always use the phrase, uh, the rise of China, the rise of BRICS, but today we use the phrase as uh, the rise of uh, Islamism. Uh, what do you uh, focus on? Uh, what, what do you mean by, the, by this concept? Uh, are you focused on, the, on its uh, cultural influence or cultural power or its economic power or influence? Thank you. Mm. Yeah. Let me take a shot at that. Um, especially in the discussion around terrorism, uh, it became conventional to insist on distinguishing between Islam and Islamism, or between Islamic and Islamist. The one, the former term, referred to the religion. Uh, 
the second referred to a politicization of the religion. Some would say a misuse of the religion. That's a value judgment. I'd say explicit politicization of the religion, often overlapping with what the term was used this afternoon, jihadist ambitions, the establishment of an of a, of a, of a international, perhaps global regime. Many debate. Is this a correct reading of Islam? Is this an extremist reading of Islam? Is this a, a possible reading of Islam? I think in any reading any ancient tradition, you can have a whole range of interpretive possibilities. That's the that's the distinction that was made in the in the terrorism dis debates between a believing Muslim and an Islamist radical. Now, what's at stake this afternoon, I think, is something more specific than that, and not Islamism in general, especially the Islamism of non-state actors, terrorist groups, but rather, rather regimes states that are now led by governments composed of, um, composed of, of um, parties that are explicitly Islamist, typically but not necessarily associated with the Muslim Brotherhood. So it's a kind of radical political politicization of Islam in power. How can we, how can we address the particular conundrum that they, fe that they, that they present to us in that they appear to have emerged out of anti-dictatorial movements, democratic, but at the same time are pursuing anti-democratic, anti-liberal policies. I would uh, also refer to your question. Um, unlike some of my colleagues, I do not uh, refer to Islam as a religion, as a more dangerous uh, religion uh, compared to any other religion too. Judaism, Christianity, or whatever. I would argue that uh, the question is not if this or the other religion is dangerous. The question is what do, how do you interpret the, uh, the religion, and how do you misuse the religion in order to provoke people to use violence based on a belief in, in a divine command. Um, and that's the problem we are facing actually right now. Now, when we are trying to distinguish between different types of uh, Islamic beliefs, the, the, the classification that I do is the following one. Uh, you have the Muslims, uh, those who believe in Islam, and, uh, and, and on that case, we need to emphasize one thing, that Islam is more political religion than many other religions. When you compare that to uh, Judaism or Christianity, you have not just commandments to the person himself, how he should behave, how he should uh, fulfill the commandments of the religion, but also how the state should behave, again, unlike other uh, religions. Um, so that's the beliefs of, uh, of the Muslims. Of course, uh, nobody should have any problem with that. Islamism is taking that that concept and trying to um, to uh, spread that all over the world. Um, that's again, it's uh, it, they are not the only religion who try to uh, expand the religion and and to send uh, the uh, the message to other communities which didn't adopt it before. Uh, I don't I don't find any problems in that Islamist uh, concepts as well. Jihadism is when they are ready to do that, and they want to do it by the use of violence, to impose 
uh, those concepts on people which do not believe on the infidels or what they refer to as infidels and if they do not they are not receptive even to kill them that's where it becomes a, a, a problem um, in, how should we refer to that how should we deal with that um, I would like to share with you an anecdote few years ago I was invited to give a talk uh, in Brussels um, and before I was giving my talk there was another speaker there he was an imam coming from Sudan a religious cleric a Muslim religious cleric and he was um, saying to the European crowd how dare you how do you, how dare you refer to Islam as if it is something to do with terrorism with violence and so on and so forth um, do you know what Islam is altogether Islam is about uh, doing the good deeds it's about peace and clemency and you even use the term jihadi terrorism. Do you know what's the, the, the concept of jihad? Jihad is, is, is a religious commitment to do uh, and to spread goodness around the world and not, not those atrocities that you refer to. He was very persuasive. Then was my turn and he was still in the room so I referred to him and I said, my friend, let me thank you from the bottom of my heart and I sincerely mean that, that you took the trouble to fly all over the way from Sudan to Brussels to share with us those two important messages, that Islam is not those uh, atrocities that we see, that jihad is, has nothing to do with those terrorist horrific attacks around the world. But between you and me, my friend, I don't really understand why did you bother to fly all over the way from Sudan to Brussels to share those important messages with us instead of, st of staying in Sudan or crossing to neighboring countries or moving to Yemen, to Egypt, to Afghanistan, to Pakistan, to Indonesia, you name it, and tell those people which are beheading innocent civilians under the name of Islam, raising the flag of jihad while they do that, tell them that what they do is against Islamic concepts, it's against jihadi verdicts. To conclude that, that's in my view, the message that is needed to be conveyed. <laughs> yes, we United States, we the Western society, we do not have a problem with Islam whatsoever, God forbid. We have a problem with the uh, interpretation and misinterpretation of Islam that in indoctrinating people to use violence against infidels. You have a problem in Islam, not with Islam. And you are the one who needs to solve the problem, i.e. you the Muslims themselves need to solve the problem. I cannot do it as a Jew, <coughs> nobody can do it as a Christian or anybody else. It should come from within. We should contribute whatever we can to those moderate that they should save Islam from the jihadists. Well, there, there are two dimensions to why Islamism as opposed to a national characterization is appropriate. First is the domestic dimension where Sharia law is uh, sought by many Islamic groups within many countries and, um, and successfully. So the separation of church and state, separation of religion and state, is uh, undermined uh, in those countries. And the second dimension is uh, the Westphalian concept of sovereignty and nations is overridden by many concepts in Islam, that the notion is Islam is the right law for the world, and not uh, and the notion and and the idea the, the agreement in Westphalia that states would not use their religious differences as a basis for conflict um, is one that uh, many uh, many Islam Islamic states, particularly Iran and the IRGC within Iran, have rejected. Um, so. 
I, you know, I, for once I disagree a little bit, Boaz. Personally, I have difficulty with the notion of, very grave difficulty with the notion of not separating religion and state. I do not have, uh, to use the word faith would be maybe appropriate, uh, I do not have faith in people of faith to uh, leave uh, others alone. Uh, people who believe so intensely that they want to bring religion, their belief, into law in a given state and impose it on others um, uh, under the American system of values and, and under what we've learned in Western civilization through many bitter wars um, are dangerous. Uh, and so um, I think that both levels of that are dangerous, both the domestic level and the international level. And you know, it isn't as though it only happens with Islam. Christianity went through this stage, and Judaism went through the stage in the old days. And in fact, when the creation of Israel occurred, um, uh, Rabbi Herzog, who was the chief rabbi of Israel, was, uh, was uh, condemned by the uh, super-religious, the ultra-Orthodox in Israel, for making a decision that religious law would not prevail over secular law as passed by the Knesset. So this is not something that, um, that is uh, exclusively an Islamic problem. It is a problem that believers have when they don't accept the notion that their beliefs are for themselves and they should be allowed to do what they want, but should not, they should not use state power to control the, the people of different beliefs. And that's why, that's why this word Islamism has really uh, grown up, because of those two concepts. Thank you. So actually, on that note, I promised that we would leave the room around 6.30, so we have to wrap it up. So I wanted to thank the speakers very much, and thank you for coming. And uh, it was very good. Thank you.